0: Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself. And then return and he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minus minas, and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. He said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him. And give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Amen. Now, in order to understand this parable, we need to understand the context, which you can see there in verse 11. We're going to talk about the parable. Of the mind is sometimes called the parable of the talents. And you'll note here the reason that Luke tells us Jesus gives us this parable is because of his proximity to Jerusalem. He is coming within the vicinity of the city where the prophets die. Now The reason Jesus tells us this at this point is because you'll notice here that there is an expectation with the coming of Jesus to Jerusalem that the kingdom will come at its consummation. There is a sense among many, an expectation, that Jesus will bring about his kingdom when he enters Jerusalem on this visit. And so Jesus here is realizing that his followers have what we would today call an overrealized eschatology an overrealized eschatology that is they are bringing what belongs to the future glory of the kingdom too soon into the present and they are expecting what comes at the end with the second coming of the lord and the raising of the dead and the final judgment they are ushering it prematurely into the present. And so Jesus here gives us this parable really to correct an eschatological misunderstanding. Interesting. I was just talking with somebody just this past week and they were commenting and complaining how theology, things, these things just don't matter. And yet we see here That it does matter, doesn't it? Jesus here is talking about eschatology. He's talking about when will the kingdom be consummated and how are we supposed to understand the kingdom before the consummation? These things have real and practical consequences for us here. So Jesus here tells them a parable to correct this part of their doctrine. Yes, Jesus is teaching doctrine here. In this parable, what he wants is he wants his followers to be prepared to work, to invest, to suffer, and if need be to die. Even as Jesus is about to go and die in Jerusalem. There will be a time for the throne. There will be a time for the glory. There will be a time for the consummation. There will be a time for rest an eternal sabbath but that is not now Jesus is making clear in the parable now is a time for prayer now is a time to work now is a time to invest now is a time to give now is a time to labor locally and regionally and internationally now is a time to take up the cross not the crown and that's what this parable is trying to do now i want to divide it into a few parts first of all verses 12 to 14 here Verses 12 to 14, we're going to see that the nobleman is going to go away. The nobleman is going away and he's calling his slaves to do something while he's gone. Then we're going to see after that in verse 15, really all the way down to verse 26, the judgment of the slaves, the judgment of of the slaves and then finally verse 27 I'm going to put just add on I'm not going to go into too much detail in the third point because we're going to take up it take up this point more when we get to Luke 21 but we're going to see the judgment that is going to come upon Jerusalem and Israel a judgment that is to come on the people who rejected him so three parts here verse 12 to 14 the nobleman goes away, the judgment of the slaves and the, the judgment of the citizens who were rejecting him. Now, let's look at this first part here. What is Jesus doing in this parable? Well, this parable, boys and girls, isn't hard to understand. I bet you young kids can even understand the characters in this parable and who they represent. So let's look at verse 12. Let's start together and see if we can figure out who Jesus is talking about As he goes and tells us this story. So Jesus said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Let's stop right there. Make sure we have an understanding of who these folks are and what's happening here. First of all, the nobleman. Well, who's the nobleman? Well, The nobleman here, young children, is Jesus, of course, himself. Jesus is the nobleman. Now, where is he going to a distant country? Well, what is that country? Well, Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going to go to heaven. You remember Jesus talks about this in the upper room discourse later with his disciples. When he tells his disciples where I am going, you may not come yet. And the disciples are confused and they're sorrowful. Lord, where are you going? Why can't we come? Show us the father, et etc. et cetera. And Jesus here is, is telling them. Essentially, he is going to leave them. He's going to die on the cross and he's going to be buried. But God is going to raise Jesus up on the third day. And after the resurrection and after the 40 days of appearances among men, Jesus is going to go away to that far country. The distant country is heaven where the heavenly father is. Christ is going to go there and the disciples cannot go there. Not yet. They must stay. The nobleman goes away to a far country. Now, what else does it say here? He says he went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself. Now, what is this kingdom? Well, this, of course, is the kingdom of God. Christ, having finished his work, is going to go to heaven. And he is going to, according to the prophecy of Daniel, where the son of man is going to come in the clouds up to the father on the throne. And he is going to present himself to the Father, and the Father will give him the kingdom. The Father will invite Jesus to sit at his right hand. And Jesus will take his seat on the throne, and he will build his church. He will build his kingdom from heaven. He will send the Holy Spirit down here, and he, for these past 2,000 years, has been building his church. And, and so that, that's where we are, really. Today, boys and girls, in this story, historically, Christ is still on the throne. Christ is still sitting next to God with all power and authority, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit. And he is building his church as promised through the word of God. That's why we need to give. That's why we need to pray for missionaries, because Christ is using that. Now, how do we see that? Well, notice here again, he said I'm going to receive a kingdom. He's going to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now, what's that return? Well, that return is the second coming. One day the king will come back. The nobleman will come back. But here's Jesus's point. Until that time, you, his servants, you, his slaves, And remember, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we're all slaves. We're either a slave to this world and to our own flesh, or we're a slave to Christ, in which we are a freeman. And so here the slaves in view are those who are slaves to Christ. These are people who follow Christ and profess allegiance to the nobleman. And so he says here that he's going to come back. And until he comes back, we're going to have to be busy at work. Now, notice here, in the midst of that, verse 14. Well, let me just say verse 13. So he gives them various minus, m- amounts of money. And he said, do business with this until I come back. So here he's giving things for his servants to invest. Money, funds. And they are supposed to utilize these To bring about a good return for the nobleman while he's away. So he calls his slaves. He tells them to trade. He tells them to invest their minas. And and that is a picture of you and me. God has given each of us talents, opportunities, time, etc. And he says, I want you to do what you can with what I give you. I want you to do what I what you can with what I give you, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to have an accounting with what you did. Okay, everybody, see that? Even young kids, little kids, y'all get that, all right? So God has given you various gifts and talents, and He wants you to use your life. Remember that famous John Piper sermon: "Don't waste your life." You can look at it on YouTube. He preaches to thousands of young people at this outdoor conference. Famous sermon. Don't waste your life. Be a good servant. Be a good slave for Christ. Use your life. Invest it wisely. Don't do what the world does. You seek out what you think Christ would have you do. Don't get your religion just by looking at others. Look at the Bible. Read the Bible. And ask yourself, what would God have me do for Christ? Christ. Maybe the Lord would call you to the vocational ministry. Maybe, maybe the Lord would have some other sphere of you to work in. But God is going to give you talents and you're going to have to sit down and examine what gifts do I have? What, what has God given me to do? What, what am I good at doing? What, are, what is the inclination of my heart? What, what, do I, what am I inclined to do to serve the Lord? Maybe maybe you have a gift of mercy and you're inclined to serve the Lord in a, in a medical profession, in a medical field, because you're very good at helping people who need mercy, who are sick, people who uh, need care. Maybe you're good at problem solving. You need to be an engineer. God has given you the ability to figure things out and how to solve problems. Uh, maybe you have a sense you're called... To be a homemaker, you you want to be married. You want to have children and you want to raise children. Where where is the church going to get that next generation if if it doesn't come from you young women? Rearing up for Christ. You're the first nursery of Christ for the next generation. You are the first theologian for the next generation. Think about that. You're the one who's going to have to answer those those tough questions. Where does God come from? Does God die? You know, those tough questions that little kids ask you. And you're going to need to be prepared to you know, answer those questions uh, satisfactorily for your children. That's where that's the first seminary they're going to go to. It's going to be the, the, the seminary of, of your home. So you have to look at what has what God given you to do? What does is, what is Christ want me to do? Maybe some of you young people, you need to pray that. maybe make that a, a prayer. Maybe you don't know. And you need to ask, Lord, I, I need guidance, I need direction. I need to know what to study. Help me. Maybe you should talk to others and uh, have a conversation with your family about where you think you're inclined, where, where you think your gifts lie. Nobody knows you better than your parents. So it's a good idea to talk to them about those things. So Jesus gives these minas to his servants and tells them to invest them, use them. I'm coming back. Do business with this until I come back. Now, what does he want? He wants us to be profitable, doesn't he? He wants us to be profitable. There's nothing wrong with profitability in the Bible. Now we're not supposed to be profitable by cheating and defrauding others and taking advantage. But a Christian understanding of economics is we are supposed to be profitable, not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors. We are supposed to seek the well-being of our community, and we we are supposed to do these things not just for my own sake or my family's sake, but but that. LaGrange, Troop County, West Georgia would be a profitable place to live, that this would be a a place of blessing. Uh, That that has always been the reformed view of vocation. I love that about the reformed faith that we have always said, whatever God calls you to do, that is your God given calling. It's not just ministers who are called by God to serve God. If you're a truck driver called by God to drive trucks, that's your calling. And you're supposed to be profitable at it. And and you're supposed to do it well and do it safely and do it for the glory of God and do it on time and be reliable. And that is a holy vocation, whatever God calls you to do, whether it's working at home, whether it's working outside of the home, God has called each of us to do something. Even us who are retired, we are not fully retired. In the retirement, we have callings. Callings to be grandparents. Callings to use that time where we may not have to clock in officially somewhere to nevertheless be profitable. Uh, For the sake of ourselves and the sake of others. And there's nothing wrong with profit. We're supposed to be profitable. We are supposed to be profitable. You know, some people think it's sinful. Profit is sin. No. It shows you're being productive. Now, notice here in verse 16, I want to get back to the theology proper, not just its applications. So he says, I want you guys to work. I want you to invest. I want you to do business. The talents I've given you, the minds I've given you, and I'm coming back. Now, it, it doesn't say here explicitly in Luke's account, but there are others where we're told that the nobleman is delayed. It's important that you understand that because Jesus here is showing that the, the consummation was not to be understood as imminent within that generation. Obviously, 2,000 years later, we know that, right? That Christ would be away for a while. And while he's gone, the church is to be profitable. And we are to be using our gifts for the sake of the kingdom. So in verse fifteen he says when he returned after receiving the kingdom he ordered the that these slaves to whom he had given money to be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And then you have the account of three of the ten slaves. Ten were given minas, three of them are mentioned here. And the first one, notice here, he takes his mina and he does really well, good trader, and he makes ten more minas. It's a tenfold increase. Okay, so that's that's a huge return. Um, the s- second, he gets five times his money. And he also is rewarded. Now, what I want you to notice here in both of those cases, example number one and example number two, notice here that the reward far exceeds the work. The reward far exceeds the the worth of the work. And I want to emphasize this because it shows how kind <coughs> excuse me, our heavenly father is. That our father lavishly rewards his children at the final judgment. And, and this is important because when you get to the third servant, what does the third servant accuse the nobleman of being a hard man? That he reaps where he does not sow. He has a wrong view of God. He has, his view of God is that God is a, not a, a loving and generous father, but is an exacting and in many ways unscrupulous God. And notice how that wrong view of God leads that servant to become unprofitable. And I don't think those two things are unrelated A wrong view of God will lead you to a wrong way to view how you invest your life. It'll make you scared to invest your life. Notice that the man who judged God hardly... was unwilling to invest himself with the talent he had been given. He puts it in a handkerchief and he hides it away. And he has a very low view of God, doesn't he? He It's kind of an uncharitable, unkind view of God. God is a hard man. God is exacting and and stern, even getting profit where he's not even put any investment. And it shouldn't surprise us when we have a view of of God like that, that our lives are not poured out more lavishly for others. If you view God as stingy. You're going to invest in a stingy manner in your own life. You're going to be stingy towards others. You're going to be stingy. In how you use your time and how you use the resources God has given you. If if you view God as generous, as kind, as paternal, as loving. you, You will feel a liberation. To invest with confidence. Knowing that the reward will far exceed whatever little profit you actually accumulate. Does that make sense? I mean, the guy gets a tenfold return. That's great. But it's ten minas. <laughs> okay, not, we're not talking billions of dollars here. We're talking a mina. And yet he's put in charge of ten cities. The guy with only five minas is put in charge of five cities. God is lavish in his love and his gifts to his children. I want to say that to encourage you that, you know, lest you... Come to the day of judgment yourself and, you know, as as one who has hard views of God. It's going to hurt the way you live, the way you invest, the way you give, the way you pray. The unprofitable servant, what did he not do? One, he did not invest, did he? He was afraid of just losing what he had. He was more afraid of losing than he was of not making a profit. But what does Jesus say? That if we're willing to lose, we gain. Those who will lose their life will gain it. They'll find it. Those who seek to keep their life or keep their mind will lose it. You see that? He didn't put any of the blessings God gave him to work. And isn't it interesting that the kingdom rewards the guy who is the most profitable? <laughs> you know, there, there are so many politicians who would be in that crowd saying, wait a minute, he has ten, and you're giving him another one? He's already got ten. And, and and the nobleman said, That's right. I'm going to give the guy who has the most. I'm going to give him more. Why would you not do that? Now, what does this say? Well, obviously, we need to invest ourselves, right? We need to invest our time. We need to invest our talents. We need to we need to take stock of our lives, and and we have various spheres of, spheres of responsibility. We have got the home. We have the church. We have the workplace, and, and we need to ask ourselves, and how do I invest? What's the most profitable way I can invest myself? You know, I can't answer that in this application section for you. I can't. All I can do is say, look, you're just going to have to do the best you can before God in figuring that out. I can't tell you. I can maybe help you if you're struggling as to where you think you're gifted, I might be able to talk through some of these things with you to help you sound out your own thinking and check to see if there may be any blind spots there in your reasoning. But but this is something every person's going to have to do before the Lord. One time when I was a younger minister, I wrote a famous minister whose ministry I really appreciated. And I wrote him and I said, you know, I want to know how much should the minister be praying each day? And he, he gave me the wisest answer. He said, Every man's just gonna have to figure that out on his own. I cannot tell you. And and that was the wisest counsel he could have given me. It would have been a mistake if he told me how much he prays every day. Because I'm not him. He's not me. He has different responsibilities than I have. And and it's the same with the the parable of the minus here. I cannot tell you how. Specifically, you're supposed to invest this. Th- this is something where each man has to, in his own good conscience, say, "Lord, this is what I think I'm supposed to do." Now, there's wisdom and multitude of counselors, and, and I'm, you know you may want to do that, but in the end, you're, you're going to have to make some of these decisions, and but don't get paralyzed. In fear, because you have a hard view of God. We're, we're supposed to be joyously making the decision. And, and just going for it. It's, this is supposed to be a liberating message. <laughs> because whatever you do, it's going to get rewarded far beyond its, its merits. So just, as one book says in its titled, just do something. Just do something. Don't get paralyzed in trying to figure out what it is, especially for you young people, to the point where you don't do anything and you just end up putting your mind in a napkin. Just do something. And, you know, you'll find out the providence of God and the will of God for your life by doing stuff. As you do things for the Lord, the Lord will either allow you to continue in that path that you're going or he'll redirect you. But if you just sit and contemplate all the time because you're paralyzed, fearing that you might make a quote unquote wrong decision. Now, there are wrong decisions if it's a matter of right and immoral. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about within the sphere of Adiaphora, in the sphere of good decisions Whether it's decision one, two, or three. They're all good decisions. Just good in different ways. And that's what I'm cautioning you. Don't get paralyzed trying to make a choice between good options. Pray about it. Look at God's word. Discuss it with others. Make a decision and go forward. Put your hand to the plow. And be and be profitable. What I need to close real quickly, I said I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on the third point. There's two verses in this parable that you need to make, pay attention to because it's going to come up in chapter 21 of Luke. The first one is verse 14. I kind of skipped over it. And the second one is the last one. Verse 27 in verse 14. Uh, of. Uh, sorry, I'm on the wrong page in uh, Verse 14. Notice that as Jesus here was talking about the nobleman who was going away. Notice that there's introduced uh, some extra tension in this story that has nothing to do with the servants, the slaves themselves. There were other citizens who were not necessarily servants here of the nobleman. And they didn't like this guy and they don't want him to be a king over them. They don't want him to get his kingdom. And and here what I think Luke is telling us here. This is a reference to those who are opposing Jesus. This is what awaits Jesus really when he gets to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest him. They're going to crucify him. And what is going to befall these men at the final judgment when Jesus comes back again? Well, he's going to judge them. He says, bring them here and slay them in my presence. These enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them. And I think here is a foretaste of the judgment that is first going to come against Jerusalem in 70 AD. But then in many ways is still but only a type of the final judgment to come in the second coming. And this is what introduces so much confusion when you read Matthew 24 and people want to know, you know, what's Matthew 24 talking about? And, you know, what what is applying to Jerusalem? What's applying to the second coming? And, and I think it's because these, Jesus often interweaves the, that, these two eschatological judgments together in the same messages. This is why it's confusing, but it's not that hard to sort out. Basically, what you need to know is that those within Jesus' generation who reject Christ will suffer a judgment, that this generation will suffer a judgment from God, which will come in 70 A.D., But that is only still yet a type of what awaits all men who reject Jesus Christ at the second coming. Let's pray together.